Let's pray. Father, thank you. We pause and say thank you for rest. We thank you for our families. We thank you for our health. We thank you for your church. Where will we be without your church? Where will we be without your word? So tonight I'm going to ask you what I've asked you a whole bunch already. Open our minds to understand the scripture. For to know the word is to know the son. To know the son is to know the father. To know the father is eternal life. We seek eternal life. We seek you. Now tonight, as we open these words, reveal yourself to us. Reveal your truth to us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week on the video, we were in chapter 6, and it ended with the call for the church to come out from the world. Last week, chapter 6 ends with a call from the Apostle Paul for the church to do what the church right now is struggling with. You know what it is? To be separate. You know what the number one <clears throat> trouble in the modern American church is? We don't want to be separate. We want to be like the world. We want to be like the world. And we feel uncomfortable when we disconnect ourselves and separate ourselves from the world. But the world has turned its back on God and refuses to face God. And if we join the world, we'll turn our back on God as well. So chapter 6 ends. You're going to miss 7 unless you understand 6. It ends with this struggle to be separate. The struggle to be different. I remember in the video I mentioned that you almost wonder why has there historically always been anti-Semitism? Anti-Semitism is this... this Hatred of the Jewish people. Why? Because since their inception, since the time of Abraham, God called them to be different, to be separate, to be unique, to stand apart from the world. And if you'll stand apart from the world, God said, I will reveal my glory in you and I'll reveal my glory through you, but I will never do it while you're in the world. I will only do it when you step back and become unique. Then I'll show the difference between you and them. And I'll reveal my glory. What's the church? We are in this age what the Jews were in that day. That does not mean we've replaced the Jewish people. But it's our time to reflect the glory of God. You can't do it when you become like the world. You have to be different. Now, chapter 7, with that context, chapter 7 continues with this called-out holiness. Understand, you're calling out of the darkness into the light. You're calling out of sin into righteousness. Called it. You've got, you got to move away from that. Chapter 7 begins with a called-out righteousness. And God's going to do something. He will display His glory in and through his bride. Now, in the Old Testament, they were called his children. In the New Testament, they're called his bride. And he's going to display his glory in his bride. 
Here we go. Chapter 7, verse 1. Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit. And let us work toward complete holiness. Because why? Because we fear God. I'm going to read it one more time. Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body, everything that can defile our spirit. Notice something. There, it gives two categories, the flesh and the spirit. Anything that can defile you, and you are not just flesh, you are also spirit. Whatever, if you can keep your flesh clean, but you allow your spirit to be defiled, it's the same thing. Come out from the unclean. <clears throat> what he's telling us to do is come out from the unclean. Come out from the unclean world. Separate yourself from the world. The Jews and now the church come away from the lost world. So I'm going to ask you a question. Here we go. This will be the foundation tonight. Do you fear God? I remember asking a man that in my office one day. Actually, I've got so I do it all the time. <clears throat> it's a really good way to start conversations or end conversations. There's a guy who comes into my office, <clears throat> and he is um, he's in an adulterous affair, and I know, and he knows that I know. And his wife is with him. And the first thing I do, she wants to save the marriage. <clears throat> I don't know what he wants. And the first thing I say is, do you fear God? Because see, there's a foundation to the question. Because everything in your worldview is affected by how you answer that question. Do you fear God? And I've, I'm afraid that a lot of people, even in the modern church, <clears throat> maybe you're in the room tonight, and you struggle with that question. We're going to get into the, what, what it means and why. And let us, look at verse 1, and let us work toward complete holiness. Why? Why am I straining toward righteousness? Why am I working toward complete holiness? Why am I pointing myself and aiming myself and centering my life on a certain direction, a certain goal? Heard somebody say, aim at nothing and you'll hit it every time? Why are we aiming at righteousness? Why are we aiming at holiness? Because we fear God. You think it doesn't matter? Think about this sentence. Work toward complete holiness because we fear God. So I want to get a different translation. So there's a Christian standard Bible that I've been reading some from. It's a pretty good, like a New American Standard Bible. It's a really good word-by-word -word translation. So here's what it says. Same verse. So then, dear friends, since we have these promises, <clears throat> let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity. And every uh, the impurity of flesh and the impurity of the spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Thank you, my son. By the way, I'm, my allergies are crazy right now, so it'll clear up here in a minute. He says, Christian Standard Bible says, bringing holiness to completion. 
in the fear of God. So I'm going to ask you again. Do you fear God? The world that we have been called to come out of has absolutely, positively lost its fear of God. Lost its fear of God. And here's the deal. <clears throat> Listen carefully. When you lose your fear of God, you will naturally lose your fear of sin. Listen to me. When a people loses its fear of God, fear of sin becomes irrelevant because there's no judge. You don't believe in a judgment. <clears throat> if you don't believe in a judgment, why would you be afraid of sin? It'd be like, why would you be afraid of the law if we put up a speed limit sign up here and there are no police to write you a ticket and there are no courts and there are no jails, why would you not speed? You don't believe you'll ever be held accountable to a standard or an authority greater than yourself. So when you lose your fear of God, this foundational fear that one day in the future I'm going to stand in front of God, when you lose that, what does sin mean to you? It doesn't mean anything to you. That's why that guy sits in front of my desk. He's in the middle of adultery. The Bible says that the adulterer will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And I look at the guy in the eye and say, do you fear God? Because I know the answer. No, you don't. You don't. If you feared God, guess what? <clears throat> You'd find a way to reconcile with that woman. Yeah, you would. What? Because the fear of judgment would affect your actions. Don't tell me it won't. It does. Many people tell me, here comes the contrasting view. And I, believe me, I've had this discussion a lot. Many people tell me that Christians should not fear God. Why? Because we've been born again. Is that true? Why would we fear our loving Father? Because that's what people say to me. Terry, I don't like it when you talk about the fear of God. Why would you fear your loving Father? Let me put it this way. A true believer fears God, but is not afraid of Him. A true believer fears God but is not afraid of him. Do you understand what that means? It's the idea that I acknowledge your authority. I acknowledge that in the future I'm going to stand in front of you and you will be the final word. I acknowledge your holiness. I acknowledge your righteousness. I acknowledge your absolute awesome authority and power. But I'm not afraid of the day that I will meet you. Because I believe your son paid off my debt but I still fear you can you do both yeah you can let me prove it to you what does God desire let me give you a few scriptures go back to the Psalms what does God desire not not what do we in the room desire what does God desire verse 10 Psalms 147 he takes no pleasure in the strength of horses or in human might so can any of us impress him? What, what, if, if, if you were to say, you know what, I believe God is God, he's awesome, he's powerful, I'm going to stand in front of him on the last day, and I'm going to impress him. 
I'm going to do something to make him think, wow, did you see that? Look over at one of the angels say, yeah, did you see? Did you see that? He says, he takes no pleasure in the strength of horses or in human might. So what does impress him? How are you going to get his attention? It's in here. No, the Lord's delight is in those who fear him. Those who put their hope in his unfailing love. What about Proverbs? You want wisdom? Here it comes. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. Now, let's go over to Revelation. In Revelation chapter 14, let me tell you what Revelation 14 is. It is the end time judgment. It's when God's going to round everybody up. It's all over. You're going to stand in front of him. Here's what he says. And I saw another angel flying toward the sky, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to people. What people are they that are going to get this news? The people who belong to the world. Okay? They don't belong to God. But they're going to hear the truth. The people who belong to the world are going to get this message. What is the message? That belong to every nation, tribe, language, and people. What's the message? What's the message, church? This angel's coming to tell all the people who belong to the world. What's the message? Fear God. Out of context? No, this is the context. Fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him, for the time has come. When What time's come? He's going to sit and judge you. The time is here. Fear him. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Go back to the beginning. Now here's where it's interesting to me. The foundation of the original covenant between God and Abraham is based on what? Fear. Do you hear me? The foundation. God comes to Abraham, he says, through you, through what I'm about to do to you and how you'll respond to me, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And what's the foundation? Fear. Here it comes. Genesis 22. What's the context? Abraham has heard God say, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, take him to Mount Moriah, put him on an altar, and I want you to take a knife and stab him. Cut him up. Set him on fire. And here's what he says. Abraham's got the knife raised, and God says, don't lay a hand on the boy. The angel said, do not hurt him in any way, for now I know what? Now I know that you truly fear God. For you have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. This is the foundation of the covenant that saves us in this room tonight. This is the foundation. Through this event, he's going to initiate a a covenant between man and God. Through this event, the Messiah will come. Abraham will have a son named Isaac. Isaac will have a son named Jacob. Jacob will have, Jesus will come from this. The genuine fear of God will do verse 1 to you. Do you hear me? The genuine fear of God will do verse 1 to you. It'll always do verse 1 to you. Let me read it one more time. Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body 
in spirit. If there's anything in your life that's defiling you and you feared God, you'll do something about it. Let me prove it to you. Some of you right now are thinking, well, I'm not so sure I believe you. Okay, let's do a test, okay? Here's the test. Tomorrow afternoon at 2 o'clock, you're going to stand in front of God. Tomorrow afternoon, 2 o'clock, hypothetically speaking, some of y'all are looking at your watches like, how does he know? <laughs> Tomorrow afternoon, 2 o'clock, you're going to stand in front of God. And you're going to give an account. And the awesome glory of God's going to pass judgment upon you. Is there anything in your life you deal with between now and 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon? Then you fear God. If you can say to yourself, no, I wouldn't change a thing, then you don't fear God. You see, the fear of God will do something to you. The idea that I'm about to go stand in front of him will do something to you. Let me read it again. Because we have these promises. One of the promises is what? You're going to stand in front of God. Because we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body and spirit, and let us work toward complete holiness. Why? Because we fear God. It does work. So that brings up the question, do you fear God? Fear of God will make you cleanse yourself. That's why when people come to me and they're living in sin, this, this guy who's in adultery sits in front of him. By the way, you want to know how that story ended? He left his wife, ran off with another woman. Wrote me a letter two weeks later, mad as fire because I said that to him and he found me to be an offensive man. And if he came back into my office, I'd ask him again, do you fear God? I don't, I've lost track of him since then. I don't know what he's doing. The fear of God will pull and the fear of God will call. It'll call you to holiness. Now, Paul, with that context, listen, that's the, that, that sets it up. Paul speaks to the church and he opens up a door called repentance. Verse 2. Please open your hearts to us. You know how I read that? Would you please listen to me? That's when I, when I read that, that's what I heard Paul say. Please open your hearts to us. Would you please listen? We have not done wrong to anyone, nor led anyone astray, nor taken advantage of anyone. I'm not saying this to condemn you. I said before that you are in our hearts, and we live or die together with you. I have the highest confidence in you, and I take great pride in you. <clears throat> you have greatly encouraged me and made me happy despite all our troubles. When we arrived in Macedonia, there was no rest for us. We faced conflict from every direction with battles on the outside and fear on the inside. But God, who encourages those who are discouraged, encouraged us by the arrival of Titus. His presence was a joy. But so was the news that he brought the encouragement he received from you. When he told us how much you longed to see me and how sorry you are for what happened, 
and how loyal you are to me, <clears throat> I was filled with joy. So let's start with this in those several verses, two through seven. Do you see the trials and the conflicts that are revealed? Do you think this coming out from the world's easy? Do you think when you separate yourself from the world, it's going to just be easy? That's why the prosperity gospel is all messed up. People go to churches and they hear a preacher say, come to Jesus and all your problems are solved. And you think you come to Jesus, at least you came to the Jesus he told you about. And then you go out and live your life and everything's a mess. And you're thinking, this is not lining up. In fact, it looks like it got harder when I came to Jesus. The prosperity gospel doesn't work. Paul is a man of God in pursuit of holiness, filled with the Holy Spirit, and it sounds like his life is in always turmoil. God encourages those who are discouraged. And joy was found where? Did you notice something? Because I did. When I read that, I found that Paul found joy in the fellowship of believers. Do you? Because I do. You know, I missed two Sundays. I was in Florida for two Sundays. And, you know, I miss these people. I miss you. I do. You know, there's a fellowship here. It's like being away from your family. Uh, there's, there's, something, there's something that's not there when you're gone. Paul says that this idea, there's a fellowship in the believers. Who wants to travel alone through the wilderness? This is a wilderness. God's story of 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 Moses delivering them out of Egyptian bondage, going through the wilderness in the promised land. It is the story of human life. Jesus is our Moses. We are now in the wilderness. The promised land's in front of us. Who in the world wants to walk in the wilderness by themselves? But you know what the truth is? Listen. I read a statistic from a guy just a few weeks before I went to Florida where the preacher said that the modern American churchgoer assumes that he is a regular attender in church when he attends one Sunday a month. You're a regular attender one Sunday a month. Now this is probably not the group to tell that to because y'all are probably the ones that are more than one Sunday. I doubt you'd be here on a Wednesday night. Either that or I've made several of you quite mad already. Why, why do you just one Sunday? Why, why does the average American got one Sunday a month? Why? I'm, and I, I, you know, I get some people have to work. You know, I get it. I, you know, I understand that. That's, that's a different story. There's a difference between having to work than playing. Do you fear God? Do you think that, do you think that he is worthy of an assembly and the worship of our hearts? Because, see, I, I think he's worthy. I just think he's worthy. I think he's worthy of my time and my devotion and my study and my adoration and my song and my bended knee. He's worthy. You see, Paul says that he found joy in the fellowship of the assembly. And look what he says. Um, his presence was a joy. When Titus got to Corinth, his presence was a joy, but so was the news he brought of the encouragement he received from you. When he told us how much you longed to see me 
and how sorry you were for what happened and how loyal you are to me. I, Paul, who was in this midst of great struggle, was filled with joy. Why? Encouragement from believers. Now, Paul's going to do something. Paul reveals, uh, reveals a fear of God that leads to godly sorrow. Listen carefully to the wording. He's going to reveal a fear that produces a result. It's called godly sorrow and repentance that sets us free. So look at the sequence. There's a fear. That fear produces a godly sorrow. That godly sorrow produces repentance. You need all three of them to get to that third one. Fear of God. It produces a sorrow, a conviction inside your heart. And the repentance is a change in your direction, a change in your life. And by the way, that's what freedom looks like. And that's the only thing freedom looks like. Paul, Paul's earlier letter, now, did you notice up here, because if you don't put 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians together, you'll miss it. Uh, how sorry you are for what happened. What's, what was it that happened that was so controversial in 1 Corinthians? Paul's earlier letter, his first letter, his 1 Corinthians letter, was hard. It is the truth of God that brings the fear of God that brings sorrow and repentance. What was that letter? There was sexual sin in the church. Paul called it out. They were told to move that person out, to, to take the person out of the, out of the assembly. When I was in Florida, um, I listened to some podcasts. I'd, I'd sit and rest a while, and then I, I've got a few preachers I like to hear preach. One's John Piper. John Piper's got some podcasts, and uh, interesting, he said something that I'd been thinking for some time, and here's how he frames it. It has application tonight. If I were to ask each of you what is the greatest world problem today, how many answers would I get? Oh, hundreds. If you ask believers and ask unbelievers, what is the greatest problem in the world today? Okay, I understand if unbelievers answered it a million ways. But in reality, Christians should answer it pretty much in the same way. What is the greatest problem in the world today? In that John Piper podcast I was listening to, here's how he framed it. The future wrath of God. The greatest problem in the world today is singularly, above everything else, the same thing. The greatest problem facing all of mankind today is the wrath of God. And the, the, if that's the single greatest problem, then there's only one solution to the single greatest problem. And that is, how can you escape the wrath of God? Jesus. So we know the single greatest problem on the earth 
that in the front of all of mankind, in the front of all of mankind, in the front of all of mankind is the righteous judgment of God. Listen, I'm going to tell you what it is. It is His wrath. It will be poured out full strength, unstoppable. It is hell's greatest fury. It is God's prison of torment. Go ahead. Somebody give me a bigger problem than that. I'll wait a minute. Go ahead. Often wonder when I do one of those little smart aleck things, if somebody raises their hand and says, I got one, what would I do? You see, here's the deal. Until you identify the greatest problem, you will never search for the greatest solution. If the greatest problem facing all mankind is the unfathomable wrath of God. Unfathomable wrath of God. But when you acknowledge that, guess what? There's a fear of God that comes up inside of you. When you start contemplating what hell is, and by the way, do you know Jesus talks more about hell than he does heaven? So some of y'all thinking, well, why do you got to bring that up? Listen, Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven. That's why I bring that up. And we know how to escape the wrath of God. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? We know how to escape. What? The greatest problem of all mankind is the wrath of God that's in front of us, and I know how to get out of the wrath of God. Do you fear God? Godly sorrow is the result of the fear of God. Godly sorrow, listen to me, produces repentance. Repentance escapes the wrath of God. Because repentance brings forgiveness. And forgiveness escapes the wrath of God. Here we go. Let me read it to you. Verse 8. I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you. By the way, that's the letter of calling out sexual sin in the church. Though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful to you for a little while, now I'm glad I sent it. Not because it hurts you, but because the pain caused you to do something. Listen to me, church. Because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways it was the kind of sorrow god wants people to have how many people in the prosperity gospel church would preach that sermon you mean there's a kind of sorrow that god wants us church people to have yeah there is one godly sorrow it was the kind of sorrow god wants his people to have so you were not harmed by us in any way by that letter for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in what? Salvation. There you go. That's when you escape the wrath of God. It's called salvation. How do you get it? Godly sorrow. It produces repentance. There is no regret for that kind of sorrow. Now what would be the regret of the other kind of sorrow? It didn't work. It didn't work. Let me go back again. Verse 10. 
For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret in that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow. What's worldly sorrow? Don't, don't cheat and read ahead. What's worldly sorrow? That's when you're sorry you got caught. Or, or, or you're sorry of the consequences of it, but you're not sorry you did it. You don't like the consequences of it, but you have no sorrow that you have grieved God. You got no sorrow that you have broken, transgressed God's laws. You got no sorrow about that. You're sorry you got caught, number one. And number two, you're sorry of the consequences of the action, but you're not sorry you did it. That's called worldly sorrow. Guess what it lacks? Look at that last verse. It lacks repentance. And what's it result in? Come on. Is this complicated? Is this complicated? Can anybody not read this and understand this? This is simple. Is it, isn't it simple? Worldly sorrow lacks repentance and leads what? What's at the end of that road? What's at the end there? It's death. What do you mean death? The judgment of God. The wrath of God is on you. This is not fade to black unconsciousness. No, that's Satan's lie. You're a soul. You're eternal. You're going to keep going somewhere. You're going to go somewhere. This whole idea of death isn't fade to black unconsciousness. It is the absence of God. God is life. And when you are called death in the Scripture, what it means is you're the absence of God's presence, which means you're not going to be where He is. It's called hell. By the way, I've studied the Scripture, and I can only find one place in all created things that God ain't. Only one place He'll never be. Hell. He, his presence fills everything, everywhere, all the time. But He, in His marvelous creation, created a place that His presence will never be. Hell. It is the absence of His presence. Forever. There's no regret in that kind of sorrow. Worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. The wrath of God. Now, I, I wasn't planning on telling you this, but I, I'm going to. And I'm going to be real careful because I'm going to get in trouble. I was having dinner in Florida. And I see somebody sitting across the room from me. I'm in Destin, and I see somebody, and I said, man, that looks like somebody I know. I don't know their name, but... So we went on and finished our dinner, and I asked my wife, does that person look familiar? And she said, yeah, I think so. So I thought, well, whatever. So we got ready to get up, so I, I walk over to their table, and I said, are you from Lawrenceburg? And it was a lady, and... Uh, that's where I'm trying to be real careful. It was a lady, and she looked up at me, and she, she said, yes. And I said, my name's Terry Cooper. And she said, I know who you are, and I'm not drinking. She was so foolish because I had never looked at her glass. 
I had no idea. Well, I looked at it then. <laughs> so, so it looked like a Bloody Mary. It looked like a, a red, like, tomato juice. And, and, and she, she caught me off guard. I mean, I, I'm like, I don't know what to say. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so she says, so she says, and I'm not drinking, and I said, ma'am, what happens in Destin stays in Destin. <laughs> and it didn't work. It didn't work. It didn't work. She looked at me, because she's got this bewildered look on her face, and she said, no, i got to tell you, I haven't drank in 30 years. <laughs> I'm like, okay, it's good to see you. <laughs> now, the reason I tell you, true story, Chad and I, we, we laughed so hard, we were crying when we got outside. Uh, I, why? Why? What, what is it about that moment? I told you a few weeks ago, I can clear out a room. Just, I mean, I'm bad for liquor sales in stores. <laughs> you see, what she did is she associated my presence with the truth. She, she associated, and you know what? I'm convinced that's what the church was always supposed to be. We're this light, and when the light gets around the darkness, the darkness will feel the pressure of the light. Not so that they'll want to get more dark. Paul says, I'm not sorry I wrote that letter. Because I wrote that letter because I love you. And in front of you is the wrath of God. And if you don't come out of that darkness, hell will swallow you one day. There is a consciousness inside of us. But consciousness is only revealed by truth. It's only revealed by truth. And there is a godly sorrow and there is a worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow produces repentance, and repentance gives salvation. And that way, I fear God, but I'm not afraid of Him because I believe He's, he's forgiven me. But worldly sorrow lacks repentance, and worldly sorrow looks like this woman who's sitting there thinking she's somehow going to stand in front of me in judgment. Listen, lady, I'm not your judge. I don't want that job. Do you fear God? Now Paul's going to speak to the church. And here we go. Here we go. This one, he gets heavy. He's going to open a door called repentance. Verse 2. Excuse me. I've jumped way on the wrong page here. When Paul says, I, my letter caused you pain. Is that true? When you confront somebody about sin, is it painful? When's the last time you enjoyed somebody telling you you were wrong? It is painful, isn't it? Let's just acknowledge it. It's painful. When Paul wrote the letter and said, this, this guy, he's having sex with his stepmother. Let's just say it. You got to get him out of the church. You see, the pain of truth can lead 
to repentance. Godly sorrow is a great thing. Because godly sorrow saves you. No regrets. No regret. Godly sorrow doesn't produce regret. You'll never be sorry that you repented. Do you hear me? You'll be sorry that you didn't repent. But you'll never be sorry that you did. So why is it hard to repent? Because it's against our nature. Worldly sorrow, sorrow, godly sorrow. So when is the last time you heard the church praise the virtue of godly sorrow? Now, I can go to verse 11. Just see what this godly sorrow produced. I'm amazed how simple this is. Just see what godly sorrow produces. Not worldly sorrow. What does worldly sorrow produce? Nothing. Nothing. Why? Because it lacks repentance. You didn't change nothing. But what's godly sorrow produce? Such earnestness. Such concern to clear yourselves. Such indignation. Such alarm. Such longing to see me. Such zeal. Such a readiness to punish wrong. You show that you have done everything necessary to make things right. You see the urgency? Was that produced by worldly sorrow? No, that wasn't produced by worldly sorrow. It was produced by godly sorrow. Verse 12. My purpose then was not to write about who did the wrong or who was wronged. I wrote to you so that in the sight of God you could see for yourselves how loyal you are to us. We have been greatly encouraged by this. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was about the way all you welcomed him and set his mind at ease. Now, I want to look at verse 10 from the Christian Standard Bible. For godly grief produces a repentance. Grief, sorrow, grief. That's painful. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Does godly sorrow encourage you? Paul says it encourages. It encourages. Are you encouraged when you see a person come to true repentance? I am. Here's the thing. I can't always tell when it's godly and when it's worldly. Let me be real frank about something. I have had many situations more than I would care to describe, in which there's been sin in the church and that sin has been confronted. And sometimes it looks like repentance and sometimes it's a fake. I can't tell the difference. God can. I can't. I've been duped. Multiple times I've been duped. I assumed it was godly sorrow. I assumed it was genuine repentance. I assumed that the fear of God had produced godly sorrow, had produced repentance, which produced salvation, which is reconciliation and restoration, and I was duped. How would you know? Because the direction never changed. 
the direction never changed. You keep walking in the same direction and call it repentance, you're a liar. Now, I can't tell. But God knows. All of this talk is about Paul's letter to the church about a man in the church that was having sex with his stepmother. Okay? That's what this is talking about. Now, let's, now let's move on to verse 13. We've been greatly encouraged by this. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was about the way all of you welcomed him and set his mind at ease. I have told him how proud I was of you, and you didn't disappoint me. I have always told you the truth. Listen to what Paul's saying, even after writing that hard letter. I have always told you the truth, and now my boasting to Titus has also proved true. Now, he cares for you more than ever when he remembers the way all of you obeyed him and welcomed him with such fear and deep respect. I am very happy now because I have complete confidence in you. I remember doing that Henry Blackaby study years ago, and one part of that study I always found interesting, that when you or I encounter a true man of God, there is a natural fear in our hearts. Do you hear me? I remember the first time I read that, I thought, huh, I don't know that I'd just accept that offhand. And then he gives the examples. How many of you remember the story when God calls Samuel to go to anoint David? Saul is the king, and Samuel thinks, Saul will kill me if he finds out I'm anointing a king because he's king. God says, don't worry, go anoint him. When Samuel enters the town of Bethlehem, what happens? Anybody remember? Because this, I can find you on numerous occasions. When Samuel enters the town of Bethlehem, all the people are terrified by his arrival. Why? He's a holy man. A holy man has just come into town. He's carrying a word of truth. He carries God's word. And you know what the people say? What have you come here for? It's like they're panicking. Why? Because we know that you carry the word of truth. You know who's supposed to be doing that today? Us. That was always God's design for the church. We carry the word of truth. It was, it was part of who we are. And when we carry this word of truth, it's powerful. It's convicting. People are like, you know, what, what, what do you mean? Why are you here? Sorrow and repentance are deeply connected to the fear of God. Listen carefully. Sorrow which in other words is grief. And repentance are deeply connected to the fear of God. You can't pull these apart. They're, they're united. Look at how Jesus puts it. Let me prove to you. Sorrow, repentance, and the fear of God. They are deeply connected to each other. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, Dear friends, don't be afraid. Doesn't stop there, does it? 
Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot do any more to you after that. But I'll tell you who to fear. Fear God. Why? Who has the power to kill you and then throw you into hell. He is the one to fear. The Apostle Peter gives more reasons to fear God. 1 Peter 2.15 It is God's will that your horrible... Horrible. That's a mistake. It, it is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone and love your Christian brothers and sisters. Fear God and respect the king. So what if you don't fear God? I've talked about that a lot. What if you don't? What if we never experience godly sorrow? What if at no point in your life you ever experience this thing that Paul talks about to the church? You never have this conviction of brokenness inside of you, this godly sorrow. What if it never happens to you? What if we never repent of our sins? What do you think breaks the power of sin? Because here's the deal. Listen, sin always brings death. 100%. So if you could break the power of sin, you could break the power of death. All right? Is this complicated? It's not complicated. What, what caused death in the Garden of Eden? What caused death to Adam and Eve? What was it? Sin brought death. And because one man sinned, sin entered the whole world. So if you could fix sin, you could fix death. So how do you break the power of sin? By ignoring it? Think about it. Here we go. Here's the answer. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Well, then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. Here's his baseline. Jews, Gentiles, everybody, we're under the power of sin. What's that mean? You're going to die. As the Scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise, and no one is seeking God. All have turned away and all have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. Why? 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 What's all that? They have no fear of God at all no fear of God is a symbol of being absolutely lost no fear of God is a symbol of the future wrath of God is upon you fear will be the description of judgment when Jesus comes Revelation 6 12 I'm leading up to what am I looking for I'm looking for how, how do I break the power of sin? 
Well, first I need to identify the power of sin before I can break it. Revelation 6.12 I watched the Lamb broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth and the moon became as red as blood. Then the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs fallen from a tree shaken by strong wind. The sky was rolled up like a scroll and all the mountains and islands were moved from their places. What's happening? What is happening? I mean, what is this? The great and dreadful day of the Lord has come. And then everyone, what? Everyone. The kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave and free person all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath. From the what? Hide us from what? From what? From the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to survive? So let's end with this question we began with. Should the church live in fear of God's judgment? When I read that to you, Revelation 6, 12 through 17, does that make you what? What's it do to you? Should the church live in fear of God? Are, this, are they the same thing or are they different? Can you fear God but not be afraid of God? Let's let the word of truth answer the question. 1 John 4, 16. We know how much God loves us. And we have put our trust in His love. God is love. And all who live in God, live, live in love, live in God. And God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. Do you hear me? Somebody say hallelujah. Do I fear God? Yeah, I do. But I refuse by faith to be afraid of the day of judgment. Why? Because Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. And those with the faith of Abraham will never be afraid of meeting God. In fact, the opposite will occur. They will long for the day they will meet God. Listen, verse 17. And as we live in God. Now, are we talking about unbelievers? No, that, this would not be applicable, would it? As we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world world such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear if we are afraid it is for fear of punishment and this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love so can you do both can you can you fear god but not be afraid of him 
Can you fear him because you acknowledge his absolute glory, his absolute omnipotent power, and yet not be afraid, but anxiously await the day you will stand in front of him? Yes. In fact, this is the confidence of those who are born again. What? You believe it. How? I don't even know how you can believe that. I just know you do. I don't even know how I can possibly have the strength to believe what just came out of my mouth. But I can tell you I believe it with every ounce of fiber inside of me. My greatest hope is to see his face. And yet I fear him. How can I fear the one I most desire to meet? I fear God, but I don't fear judgment day because of perfect love. Jesus on the cross. He has removed my fear of punishment. You see, I get it. I get it. I acknowledge tonight, like John Piper, I acknowledge tonight that the greatest problem for all of mankind is singular. The wrath of God awaits us. But if that is indeed the greatest problem, I know the cure to the greatest problem of man, the blood of the Lamb. He takes away my fear of the wrath of God because there is no wrath of God upon those who are forgiven. And the blood of Christ has forgiven us. So how would I summarize? The fear of God cleanses us. It purifies us. And we, the church, have been called what? To come out of the world. Step away from the darkness. Step away from the darkness. Move into the light. Turn around and face God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the simplicity and the power of your word. And thank you that tonight you have honored our prayer that you have opened our minds to see and understand the Scriptures so we might know you and understand what godly sorrow is. It leads re to repentance and salvation in Jesus' name. And for that, we worship you with thanksgiving and praise. And amen. Thank you all for being here tonight.